Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this is Nat Turney here with my brother, John, as always, who literally just took a sip of coffee. Nice job. Hey, John, say hi. <laughs> I'll just say hi. Hi. <laughs> okay. I thought you might like try to say hi through the coffee sip. Like your timing is impeccable, by the way. Hey, um, it's, it's coffee. <laughs> if I if I need a drink, I'm going to drink, and you're just going to have to you're going to have to work around that. I'm a little pissed though that I'm looking at your coffee cup and it says Starbucks. What the hell, dude? Well, I mean, is there a is, is there another brand that should be right here of a mug that I haven't got yet? Maybe, maybe. Okay. Or maybe All we right. should just, you know, buck for that Starbucks sponsorship, you know? Yeah, hey, did you hear that do. Joel Osteen has a Starbucks in his church? Like oh an God. actual legit oh franchise. Oh my okay. God. All right. Anyway, I haven't even introduced the guest. This is how, this is how, this is how jacked up this is going to go. He's got a McDonald's too, by the way. Um, but someday. We are here today with a guest that I've, I mean, I've wanted to talk to this guy for quite a while. Um, uh, this is Jeff Turner, who's with us today. And uh, Jeff is the author of, of two books uh, and working on, I, I guess, three or four, 10 more. Who knows, man? He's a prolific guy. But uh, <laughs> Saints in the Arms of a Happy God, which I read a couple of years ago. Um, and, um, and then also The Atheistic Theist, uh, which is, by the way, just a brilliant title, man. It is thought-provoking, just the title alone. Um, and also, he is the host of a podcast called Religionless. He's a husband. He's a father. He's a good looking dude. So if you don't get to see the video, I apologize. You're missing out. Um, but well, welcome you. to the podcast, Jeff. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, guys. I'm honored. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. Yeah, it's awesome. And I have followed you on Facebook. You're one of those guys that, um, honestly, I sort of early on in my, I guess, I don't even know what to call it anymore. Um, but like diving into grace a lot, you know what I mean? So that, that, that early Fourier, a lot of us have like out of fundamentalism and into this expansive, like, oh, hey, God's not an asshole, you know, sort of theology. And then I, so I, I was, I was, you know, I was drinking from the fire hose and it was all kinds of people. And you were, you were integral in that. I remember reading, uh, Saints in the Arms of a Happy God and just going, yes, yes, yes. I mean, there's, uh, ha, a few years removed from that from that book, how, how do you feel about it? Um, are you still are you still there, or have you kind of evolved a little bit beyond? What do you think? Well, I'd hope I'm always evolving a little bit, but you know, I'm still there, and I'm still I'm still proud of what was written there. It still represents, you know, uh, it's still an authentic picture of who I am. Um, there might be some things. I mean, heck, that was that was uh, when, when did that come out? That came in came out in 2014, so almost. Yeah seven years ago now. So uh, yeah, there's some things I might say a little bit differently. But um, on the whole, I would still, I still stand by what I wrote there. In fact, you know, a lot changed from when I wrote that to when I wrote the next book. And now some of my thoughts even gravitate back more towards what I wrote in that original book. And maybe, um, maybe a bit, maybe it's a bit more expanded and teased out than it was there. But yeah, no, I still, I still stand by it. I haven't read it. Probably since I published it, but I. <laughs> right, right. I remember I, I mentioned that to uh, Brian Zond once time, a book he had written like early, early on in his career. And he just kind of rolled his eyes and went, oh, yeah, I need to I need to look at that again. And um, and I remember talking yeah. to uh, we're, we're going to have uh, a lady named Felicia Mural on the on the program pretty soon. And she's I said, oh, by the way, I, I was chatting with him. Like, I bought your book and I'm really going to check it out. She's like, oh, well, just remember, there's a reason Jesus wrote in sand. And I'm like, 
that's brilliant. Like what a, what yeah, a, see, now you're making me nervous. Like, I'm going to have to go back over that book. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just, just for giggles. I read the first chapter or two this morning. That's good, man. Mm-hmm. It's good. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, I was reading through some of the endorsements though. And I'm, there's a couple of, a couple of folks. I'm like, I'm not sure, sir, about that guy anymore, but <laughs> they were. Now, there you have very it. That happy. I know for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, I bet you look through those endorsements and be like, yeah, that guy. Nah, yeah. I, I don't know. Take that name out of it. <laughs> yeah. And plus they might not want to be in it anyways now. So I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's all good though. I do, I do wonder yeah. if you ever have a beef though. I brought Brian Zond up and I'm, I'm, I'm all about bringing the Brian Zond beef war up. Um, like he just <laughs> yeah. about stole the title of your book, man. Like you write Saints well, in the we, Arms of a Happy God and he ripped you off. Well, but we both ripped off Jonathan Edwards anyway, so I guess it's all fair. Um, although I do Gosh. wish in retrospect, I do wish I would have maybe called it Sinners in the Hand or Sinners in the Arms of a Happy God or whatever, but I was just trying to do a total reversal of yeah, sinners yeah. in the hands of an angry God. But in retrospect, you know, yeah, at the time, sinner is not a word. I would comfortably use, I would have comfortably used to describe a believer that was very much still in the throes of the grace movement and, and identity and things like that, which is important. But at this point in my journey, I think it's fine to embrace the title of being of sinner in the context of a relationship with a loving God, because I think it only amplifies his love. So I, that's the only, no beef, no beef, because yeah. we both stole the title, no, I, but maybe I, I would have preferred I, I, to keep sinners in there, but... Hmm. Yeah, I assume there wasn't a beef. I'm always trying to create some drama yeah. if I can, but um, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't mind to. Yeah, I wouldn't mind having sold as many as his sold, but you know, whatever. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Well, let's talk about that though. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that because I, I had a really good John and I had a really good conversation with Brad Jersak. Um, we've had a m- multiple yeah. conversations because he's brilliant, and we were teasing out some of that stuff we were just talking about. This, okay, how do we separate this eternal identity of saint, of, you know, sanctified, um, holy, righteous, whatever we are, and then this sort of existential reality where I still struggle with this stuff. I, I can't, I can't rightfully say that I've, that, that I don't do things that are harmful sometimes and I don't, you know, engage in activity that's not, you know, the best for me. And so, I mean, what's your, what's your take on that? What do you think? I think our use of the term saint that we usually juxtapose to a term like sinner, and we, we like to talk in terms of, I was once a sinner, now I'm a saint. I think that use of language is a response to the bad system of theology we came from. Because the system we came from, you were a sinner no matter what you did. No matter what good you did, um, no matter how holy or righteous you were, whatever, you were still a sinner because you were tainted by Adam's original sin. And then once you're in Christ, now you are sainted by Christ's, you know, um, his, his glory and his holiness. And so it was a reaction, I think, against that. Like, I'm no longer a sinner, I'm a saint, don't call me that. So it was a way of breaking away from that old identity. Um, but now that I've come to deconstruct further that old theology I came from, I no longer really identify with it, even in protesting it. So I don't necessarily need that term to set me apart from it. Um, you know what I mean? But I think we grow and we grow in stages. So I think when you're first coming out of that way of thinking, you might need something like that where you can, right, right. You can just absolutely deny the term sinner by resting in the fact that I'm a saint. And you know, that's, that's helpful to a lot of people. It's not really something that I require right now. Um, but it was something I required once upon a time. 
Um, but I, I, at this point in my journey, I see no, um, I have no problem whatsoever with me not being always able to live up to the standard of Jesus and yet being fully accepted as a son. And I don't necessarily need, you know, a title or a position to make me feel secure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, totally. I, 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 yeah. I, the further that we deconstruct these concepts even and remove them from behavior and, mm-hmm. and just sort of tie them strictly to, you know, and, and there's an existential reality. Yes. And then, but there's the, what, what Brad would call, you know, an eternal identity is this. Of course, you're always this. Yes. Um, but we do yes. have an existential struggle, which is sin, uh, all the yeah. time, every day. I mean, that's just something that we, you know, that we deal with when we try to do good in the world and fail. I mean. Right. And it's part of the story and it belongs. It has a place at the table. Whereas the the way I used to think was that I had to see all of that as existing completely in the past, having nothing to do with who I am right now. And that was the only way I could really feel secure. I had to totally disassociate myself from my past. And the more that I lived that way, the more I began to realize that it was problematic and that it made me feel you know, only loved because I was in this certain position. Whereas I didn't feel like the totality of my being was loved. And it was like, so what for the first, you know, I don't know, when did I really get quote born again, probably 14, 15, the first 14, mostly innocent years of my life are just irrelevant, because I was tainted by original sin. And what if somebody, you know, gets saved at 50 or the first 50 years of their life, just irrelevant and, and just throw them to the scrap heap. And now from here on out is all that matters. And it's like, no, uh, the whole story matters. And I think that's the importance is that I can now comb back through my story and history and see where I was always, mm, to use Dante's term, I was always pregnant with this reality, even if I wasn't fully living in that reality. It was always there. And who I am now is who I was then. And uh, yeah, anyways, yeah, I can no, preach on that for a long time, but I'm not going oh, to. Yeah. Right, right. No, you are welcome. Yeah. It, it seems like when we uh, grab onto this this title of saint, uh, you know, I was a sinner and now I'm a saint. We can fall into the same damn trap, though, uh, because once you once you're calling yourself a saint or classifying yourself as a saint, you're supposedly this new creation. But then you mess up, right? And then you make mistakes, right? And you have a bad day, and you cuss somebody out, or you yell at your kids, or I mean, fill in the blank, and then. A saint doesn't act like that. So then right. you end up having to hide that again. So it seems like you go from one, maybe somewhat correct and also incorrect label for yourself, take another somewhat correct and incorrect label for yourself, and you still end up masking it, hiding it, because you, you can't live up to the word saint. And so it seems like we do this to ourselves over and over again. Yes. Yeah. And I think it, it's for me, and I've talked about this over the years quite a bit, but one of the problems I have, even with the way that we use Paul's terminology of being a new creation, is that we view that as in, as a um, as an individual reality, that I, as an individual, am a new creation rather than a new creation has been established. And when new creation is an individual reality, it's like, well, once I was an old creation, now I'm a new creation. And so what I do is... I take this, you know, mansion that is my existence and I build a wall down the middle of it or wherever I was in my journey, I build a wall and now I'm in this duplex and, uh, you know, I, I, I wall my past up on this side and now I live on this side. So one, 
my quarters are a lot more cramped than they would have otherwise been. Plus at night, I still hear the specters and the ghosts of my past dragging their feet down the hallways and I'm still haunted by it. And then I just sit in bed and say, no, I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation. And you know, that's the way so many people uh, uh, use those terms is they kind of use them to ward off you know, the quote, ghosts of their past. When I think what the gospel actually does is it breaks in and it tears the walls down and it makes you sit down at the table with your own ghost, sits you at a table, you know, that's prepared in the presence of your enemies. And you get to know yourself for who you really are. And you come to love the past version of you that you want to forget about. And the, the gospel shows you that this guy was just hurt. He didn't understand. He, he didn't, whatever. And you come to actually fully love yourself Rather than, you know, again, sitting in bed at night, you know, plugging your ears and saying you're a new creation so you can ignore the sound of the ghosts of your past. And, and this has been, oh my God, this has been so healing for me because my, the great shame in my life does not come from before I was a Christian. Maybe technically it does. Um, but it comes from when I was a, um, oh, I'm going to try to be nice with my language here. When I was just, yeah. I was a jerk. Okay? You don't need to be. I was, uh, I was, a, I was, a, <laughs> no, I know. Just in case my mom's watching, you know, no, um, <laughs> you know, I, um, I was a pastor. I was a preacher and, uh, I, 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 I was a jerk. You know, I preached hellfire and brimstone. I often say I could preach a message on hell that would make sinners in the hands of an angry God sound like a mother's day message from the love child of Joel Osteen and Oprah Winfrey. You know, I was, I could do this thing. I was, wow. I was hardcore. <laughs> And um, <laughs> so that's where a lot of my shame comes from, from the people that I excluded, from the people that I made feel guilty, from the people that I hurt. And so that was the part of myself that I had to wrestle with. It wasn't when I was, you know, snorting Coke in rest stop bathrooms or whatever. I don't know. It, it was when I was a preacher. That's where a lot of my shame came from. And um, so yeah. I had to deal with that. And I had to learn to sit down at the table with that version of Jeff and look him in the eyes and realize that that guy, as much as I dislike him in this moment, did the best he could with what he had in the moment. And I've even had experiences with God where I've been kind of like having a pity party and, and ranting against my past self. And I've had this like distinct in my spirit of, and, in, and instead of, you know, God letting me carry on ripping on myself, I felt like, this divine gratefulness, like, no, thank you for being as passionate as you were in the moment you were in. You did the best you could with what you have. And I think when you do something with love, even if you do something stupid and jacked up, if you do it in love, there is some kind of divine transference that happens where God can receive the love with which you did it and leave the nonsense aside. And, um, you know, that's been so healing for me personally is to see things in that light. And to really see all the different fragments of my being come together so I can be a whole person and not this scattered and shattered, you know, shell. Wow. I mean, that, that's, that's so much the story I keep hearing, um, honestly, from, from a handful of people. That dualism that we've created has, has fractured us. And yes. um, I keep coming back to Brad. I don't mean to, but he's, it just keeps reminding me of the stuff we talked about when, when he talked about learning exactly what you just said sort of redeeming those years that he thought were lost and wasted and, yes. and, and recovering, losing the shame of those and, and finding the good. And so there's so much of this that I, that I think is healing for people 
Um, and yeah. it's so easy to come out of this and go, okay, just like you said, you know, I'm a new creation, I'm a new creation. Therefore the old is all crap and the new has mm-hmm. come. And therefore, yeah, like, yeah. So it's, it's amazing. But I've, I've started to see that, that, that message from Paul, you know, and even when you were talking, when, when Paul addresses the churches and he says, you know, saints, 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 I see it, I see it almost as aspirational, you know, sure. not, not necessarily yeah. like, Hey, you're all perfect. But he was like, Hey, it's like, I'm calling you to your better selves here. I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to call you into a, a reality. I think that you can, you can, you can attain by right. calling you what I think you should be. Not necessarily making some, you know, declarative statement that you are now all great and perfect in the sight of God. But boy, it, it, it's a hell of a lot better than running around calling you all a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners all the time. Um, well, yeah, people yeah, will live, totally live up or live down to the, to the expectations that you have for them. So. Exactly. I mean, and look at, look at Nathaniel, who is, who is totally doubtful of Jesus' messiahship, who's, who's sitting there saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What, what, what are you talking about? This isn't, that, <laughs> right. this isn't the guy. And Jesus shows up and he says, ah, true Israelite, whom there is no guile. And immediately what comes out of his mouth, oh, you're the, you're, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Like all it took was for someone to look past his doubt and his um, insecurities and to peer into the, peer into the depths of his being and tell him who he really was. And he goes from, can anything good come out of Nazareth to, oh my God, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's amazing how little people need. Yep. It's just amazing. And then even Jesus seems shocked because Jesus is like, you believe me because I told you, I saw you sitting under the tree. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. It's like Jesus was even shocked how little it took to awaken his true identity within him. You know, and I think People need so, so very little um, in, the, in the way of encouragement. But when you grow up being browbeat and smashed over the head with uh, this Turner Burn bullshit gospel all your life, sorry, mom, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, takes, it takes so very little to awaken your true self within you. And, and so, yeah, sometimes just that little identification of saints, 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 it, it's not some... Um, even when you call it aspirational, it's it's not like a, you know, some legalistic thing. It's just, it's it's calling out the, the gold in you. It's calling out the, the truth of who you really are. And people, like you said, will live up to or down to your expectations and what you observe. And, um, you know, it's almost like we were talking about Schrodinger, Schrodinger before we came on. And, um, right. <laughs> you know, the idea is that, you know, until, well, without going into the whole um, crazy thought experiment that was Schrodinger's cat, you know, um, you put a you put a cat in a box, and there's this diabolical device that releases this poison gas. Um, after a certain amount of time, I don't even remember. It's been a while since I've really thought about this, but he basically says that until you open and observe what happened, the cat basically exists in two states. There's both a dead and an alive cat until you observe it, and you co- and you collapse that wave state into a particle state, and it becomes whatever it actually is. And in some way. You know, until the gospel comes to us and collapse the wave state of our being into a particle state, we don't really know who we are. You know, we're, am I a sinner? Am I a saint? Am I whatever? And then the gospel comes and tells you who you are, like it did to Nathaniel. You know, you, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. And all of a sudden, who he really is, it, it collapses into being. He becomes that thing. And um, there's no longer any doubt, you know. Yeah. And at that point, you've been Schrodinger. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Come on, man. I tried. It didn't. It didn't quite yeah. land. Schroding. Schrodinger. No, it worked. It worked. <laughs> if I ever re-release the book, maybe it'll be Schrodinger's Saints in the arms of in the arms of a happy God. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, honestly, go. though, as you're uh, there, this happens from yeah. time to time, Jeff. And so, um, I, as I'm talking to people, sometimes you just start to hit stuff, man, and it starts to resonate. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I got hair standing up on my, on my arms, and I'm like, that, that hits that whole Schrodinger's cat thing might sound on its like, like, okay, we're being, we're making light of it. Actually, not absolutely at all. I think that's actually yeah, 100% exactly what's happening, and that collapsing of the wave state from the particles. That's that's worth exploring. I mean, there's some stuff there mm-hmm. that I think. Um, wow. I mean, as I'm as you're For saying, sure. it just it it has the ring of truth to it. Like we do exist in this dualistic state a lot of times, and we've got to we got to find a way to pick a side, man. You know, and and or or a side will be chosen for us. Yeah. But the more that we identify with one side over the other, I think we do tend to move ourselves in the direction. Um, one thing the Grace Movement gave me that I'll be forever grateful for is an ability to to detach behavior from identity. And so that 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 thing that happens your whole life Absolutely. where you do bad and therefore now you are bad, that had to go away, man. And it had to go away hard. So yeah. I'm I'm like you. I I I I I went that way. I tacked that direction 100% for a little while because I absolutely need to make a clean break with all of the other harmful and toxic crap. And now I'm comfortable someplace in the middle. For sure. You know, kind of like Luther's simultaneously yeah. a, simmer, a sinner and a saint, you know. So, yeah. I, I, man, I think that's awesome. I, well, um, I mean, but do, does, the, does the church mess this up in the way that they, they hammer at us or their congregation or whoever over and over again that you are just a dirty, rotten sinner? Um, that, uh, you know, there's so much for you to do to even be able to consider yourself a saint. So yeah, there's this, there is this dualistic, uh, nature in you, uh, but they seem to, specifically the Western evangelical church seems to kind of park their sermon or their, and their, their words in the, the dirty rotten, the dirty rotten sinner side. And, um, so, I mean, it, how do you, how do you even try to merge those two identities, uh, in, into something that we can then say, okay, yeah, I am. Uh, I am a saint, uh, but so, yeah, sometimes I just mess up. I don't necessarily think that you can within that system. You know, I think yeah, I think both the sinner saint mentality um, operates within the same uh, matrix, or it, it operates within the same system. You know, because one is just the mirror image of the other. You know, they're they're two ends of the same stick. They're two ends of the same pole, and meaning that in a sense they're the same thing right so if 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 the grace movement with the hyper um inf- uh, what's the word i'm looking for with the um emphasis on identity is on this end of the pole and then the evangelical church with the hyper emphasis on original sin you're a sinner blah 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 is on this end of the pole if you pick up the pole you pick up both ends i mean they exist within the same system in a way and so i think the gospel the gospel is a system altogether. It's not a projection of one of these two systems. It's a projectile that breaks into both and should shatter it and, and establish something new. And I think that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians when he says that the gospel rescues us from the present evil age. And then I think he goes on to talk about what the present evil age is in his mindset. 
that are in his mind that it's a system that divides, you know, Jew, Gentile, slave free, male, female, um, believer, unbeliever, atheist, you know, whatever, uh, theist. It's a system that divides and, and, and works in terms of polarity. And so you're never really dealing with anything different when you deal in that system. It's all the same thing. So what Paul says is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What matters is a new creation. That's how he ends the letter. He begins it by saying we're rescued from the present evil age, but what are we rescued for? For this new creation in which that either or thing doesn't mean anything. And so I think the new system is, like I was saying before, you can see the totality of your being as being included. And it's no longer the dualism of saint sinner. It's, it's, (laughs) I royally screw up sometimes, man. And then other times I just hit it out of the park, but it doesn't matter. I'm loved. I mean, you know, my, my own children, I hope that's the system they exist in within our household, that some days, man, they hit it out of the park. Some days they do not hit it out of the park. And yet never (laughs) once do they question that they're loved, you know, never once do they question whether or not they can come and lay their head on my shoulder. And I, we, my wife and I have deliberately tried to raise our kids in that kind of context where even when they do the stupidest thing under the sun, there is never shame. They never go to their rooms and hide from us. They never feel like they can't be with us. They will come directly to us, talk to us about what they did. And we'll be like, sorry, dude, you were kind of a, kind of an idiot there, right? But you're my son and I love you, you know, and, and, um, it's a whole different kind of system, I think. And I think that's what the kingdom is. And, uh, you know, I'm writing a lot about this right now in my book, the next book I'm writing, which is called The Liberation of Christ. And the premise of the book is, uh, I don't want to spoil too many things, but believe me, there's going to be a lot more than what I say here. So still buy it when it comes out. Um, it's, uh, the premise of it is exploring John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we often use that as a limiting statement. We use that as, well, Jesus is saying, the only way that you can experience God is by going through him. And I think there's, you know, there's some truth there, but it has to be teased out a little bit. What I hear when I hear that is Jesus saying that he has shown us a way that is how we experience the Father. And what is that way? Well, in my thinking, that way is this. Jesus is the divine Logos, right? That's what John says in the prologue to his gospel. In the beginning was the Logos. That's Jesus. Well, what is Logos? If you go back to Heraclitian philosophy, which is where the term Logos comes from, Heraclitus or Heraclitus says that The Logos, which is like the deepest principle that underlies everything. Reality is shaped the way it is shaped because the Logos is the skeleton of reality. So this is the deepest truth of all truths. And according to Heraclitus, the Logos is this relationship of tension that that, uh, exists between pairs of opposites, right? So day, night, hot, cold, male, female, whatever. It's It's this union between opposites, but it's not a loving union between opposites. It's a violent union between opposites. And they merge into oneness only because one overcomes and swallows up the other. John takes the word logos in the prologue to his gospel and he says, in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with or like face to face with God, not in opposition to God, not fist to face, but the logos was face to face with God and the logos was God. So the logos, which is face to face with God, merges into oneness with God, not by overcoming it, which is what happens in the Heraclitean Logos, but it merges into oneness through agreement. And, 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 and I think that's the way of Jesus. I think that's what it is. I think that's what Jesus means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the thing that signals to the cosmos 
that matter and spirit, that heaven and earth are now perfectly joined in me. And I am the pattern that shows you that all things should be drawn into this kind of oneness. And uh, that is what I believe the way is. And so I believe in a way what Jesus is saying is that any, any place where you see this happening, you are watching the activity of the Logos unfold. And it's mind-blowing to me when I look back at some of the early church fathers, some of the things that the early church taught. You know, some early church fathers believed in what's called the Prisca Theologia, which means that they believed that um, other cultures, other religions basically had the gospel existing within their myths and belief systems in a kind of seed form. As I said, at some point, I think in this interview, even Dante of Inferno fame, you know, said that the, the, the world, pre-Christian world was pregnant with the true religion uh, before it ever showed up. It was there. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, it's uh, Augustine said that the, the Christian religion already existed everywhere. And Jesus came not to like change everything basically, but basically to show people you've always been doing this. You have, you just haven't known what it was. And right, right. in some aspects you haven't been doing it. So that's what you turn from. But this is what you turn to. And now I'm going to tell you what its name is. That's what Paul did in Acts 17. You know, he used their own scriptures to uh, essentially, their poets, their scriptures, to show them how God has always been at work in them. The same way that when he preached to the Jews, he used their scriptures to show them the principle of Christ at work. When, When he talked to Gentiles, he used their scriptures. He didn't use Jewish scriptures because that wouldn't have made any sense to them. He used their own philosophies, their own writings, their own religion. And so like the early church had this, vision of, of Jesus that was so vast and large, it existed in all of these faiths that today we would just say, no, you have to completely turn from that to this. Whereas the early church, or at least you know, segments of the early church, would have said, no, the, the, your whole story belongs. So it's not like this, you started and we stopped because that's you know, post-Christ and now you're new creation. It was at the whole thing, your entire culture, everything belongs. It can all be redeemed. You know, Christ has been working in your lives. A story, it's a tragic story. It's a heartbreaking story. But it was one of the things that really started to open my eyes to the nonsense that was my previous way of believing. I was a pastor and we had a missionary in, guy with a heart of gold, nothing but respect for him. Um, Even if I disagree with his message and his methods, I just want to make it clear he's a great guy who's done fantastic work, even if I disagree with his message. So he, he speaks in East Asian, or he's a missionary in East Asian countries. And, you know, ancestral worship and all that is, is very big there, or at least an honoring of ancestors is, is huge in those cultures. And so he said, when we go to these villages and we preach the gospel, um, the fir- like after they respond to the gospel, they will spend something like the first month at the makeshift altar, weeping and wailing. You can hear it all throughout the village. You can hear their cries coming from the chapel um, all throughout the valley, you know, because they're just mourning the loss of their ancestors who their entire lives, going back thousands of years, they thought they've been with them, leading them and guiding them and working with them. And they've, uh, but when I come and I preach the gospel to them, I tell them, no, all of these ancestors are in hell and you're the first one to ever break that chain. And it devastates them. And I'm sitting there in the front pew listening to this as a pastor. And I'm like, what the hell am I listening to? Is this the gospel? Is this good news? To break into a culture, you know, and tell them, not only have you been wrong, but like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But it's a a microcosm of what we do to people, or maybe that's a macrocosm of what we do to the microcosm that we tell the individual, 
everything that happened up until this point in your life doesn't mean anything. But if you look at even the way the early church preached the gospel to other cultures, it included their culture in the story. It said Christ was present even in these things, things that we would say is idolatry that needs to be smashed and turned from. Some segments of the early church would look at it and say, no, Christ is present in that. And I think if, if, if we can do that with whole cultures, certainly we can do that with our individual lives to look back at the stupid stuff we've done even and see the redemptive seeds that were there. And I think it's just a whole different system. It's a whole different way of, of viewing things. It's new creation versus the present evil age that is all based on a distinction between this and that. So I don't know if that made any sense. I got a little preachy and went, went off there, yeah. but I hope that no, makes sense. I love it, man. It makes it makes a ton of sense. Um, I, as, I, it's funny because as you're talking, I'm thinking of Paul and I'm thinking of, you know, in him, we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said, yes. which is, you know, taken from a hymn to Zeus. So there is, there's Paul not, you know, I've, I've preached messages like this in my church and I'm like, listen, our job is not to go bash the prevailing culture and tell them how they're all terrible, awful people. Paul never did that. The early church never did that. Um, they say, hey, that statue right. you have that's dedicated to the unknown God, let me tell you who that guy is, actually. You've been worshiping Jesus this whole time. And, and you just didn't know it. So let's, let's talk about it. And, um, when you're talking about, um, a new creation, um, man, so what, so what strikes me is this. So much of Western Christianity is so hyper individualistic. Um, even the salvation message has been tuned down to a, you know, you must make your specific individual choice, um, versus what did Jesus do to redeem and restore the cosmos? Right. So rather than a cosmic new creation, like you, like I, I love the way you're, the way you're saying this. Um, it's not a new creation. I, I didn't necessarily individually become a new creation, but I have this chance to step into this whole new order of things. It's like, Oh, that's humanity now. That's the deal now. Um, Christ showed us what it means to be fully human, to see the fully human and the fully divine joined finally face to face. And now if I want to, I can mm -hmm. step into that and I can experience that. Um, but we've turned it into, you know, say a sinner's prayer, feel the tingly bumps and <laughs> suddenly I'm a new creation, even though I want to go, even yeah. though in a week I still want to go home and, you know, you know, snort Coke in a bathroom, like you said, um, which sounds terrible. Right, right. But yeah. <laughs> also, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I never so, did that, by man, the way. That what was a, just... <laughs> no, I, I haven't either. Um, but, but I'm not above it either. So let's, let's make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> I find it interesting that you, you know, you bring up this idea of, um, using other faiths in communication towards, uh, a, like a universal Christ, right? Um, and the early church seems to have been okay with this to the point where the early church actually absorbs into its faith some of the faith traditions oh, yeah. of other people, right? I mean, the way we celebrate some of our holiest of holy holidays have been absorbed from what we would now call pagan pagan religions, right? And so oh, yeah, absolutely. it seems like at some point we have lost our way from this idea of, hey, there's some truth here that we can that we can kind of mm -hmm. co-mingle with. And now we're like, we have the only truth. Yeah. Everything else is complete bunk. It has nothing to nothing to offer us. And so we, it's now like, you know, it's again, a dualistic us, them scenario. Uh, do you, do you see yeah. a, like a point or historically where we kind of lost our way? I mean, is that, I mean, is that even something we can quantify? I don't know if it is because like I said, you know, not every segment of the church 
dealt with things this way. Um, right. But I think we have to look at it through the lens of who the Logos is, who the Christ is, you know, and we can right. see it where it exists in our history. I'm not sure, you know, if there was like a for sure breaking point. There were probably a million small ones. Um, but I love what you said, even about our, mo- our, our most powerful images that we celebrate in our Christian feast days and holy days. Almost all of them come from pagan cultures. You know, I had um, John Alexander Shia on my podcast, who you guys would be a great guest to have on yours in the future, um, at Christmas time. And he has a whole book he's written and it's coming out uh, this, it, it's supposed to be out by next Christmas called The 13 Days of Christmas, wherein he just breaks down all the pagan symbolism um, that we took, we borrowed from the Celts, but how we did it and why we did it. Like growing up, that was always spoken of as like this nefarious thing. The church smuggled in all this pagan religion and um, made it look like Christianity when the truth is, no, we went over the hills and we found this culture that had never, that had no language um, for the things that we were talking about. And so we're not going to crack open Moses and try to show them Christ through Moses because they have no idea who Moses is. We'd first have to establish who Moses is and then work them into Jesus. So instead they looked at their festivals, their winter solstice celebrations and whatever. And they're like, oh my God, this is all the same story. The story that we revere is present here. And you know, here's something that I've thought a lot about the last few years too, is that we often come in to, not just to cultures, but again, even an individual, This there's a microcosm and macrocosm uh, thing going on here, but we'll come into cultures and we'll say, you know, hey, we have the truth. We've got the real message. Everything you believed up until this point is crap. So pitch it and follow what we're pitching. And uh, all of the beauty and all of the, you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years worth of collective lessons and wisdom that is in these cultures is lost to us because we come in and we replace it with our own sometimes, which is much younger and not near as wise. Even if we have the principle of the Christ that unlocks, you know, things present within their belief system, it doesn't mean that they don't have anything else divine present within their belief system. I think the Logos is is Trinity, right? It's I'm a Trinitarian. Um, somebody doesn't have to be a Trinitarian to see things the same way. But I think the whole, at, at the center of creation, is this loving union between Father, Son, and Spirit, which is giving and receiving, including and being included, loving and being loved. So that is the natural flow and bend of the world, giving and receiving. Not just giving, but also receiving. And so when we go and preach the gospel, let's say, we don't just come to give, we also come to receive, and not just an offering. We come to receive what is present in your history, that enriches and informs what we believe as well. You know what I mean? So like I'm, I am a, I'm a student of all sorts of religious traditions that I love. I've got a copy of the Tao Te Ching right here on my desk next to me. I, I love, you know, there's so yeah, much wisdom in, in, in Taoism yeah. and, and all these different philosophies. Yeah. It's brilliant, you know, but I'm, but I come at it from the perspective of one who is absolutely obsessed with the Christ, with the Christian message, with the gospel. Um, but there are ways that um, Lao Tzu says things that maybe the scripture doesn't say things. But once I read the Tao in the context of the Logos, I can now glean things from this that I might not have been able to glean from scripture because it's spoken from a different culture. Even if it's the same, at its core, it's the same truth. It's said in a way that maybe I can receive differently because it comes from outside of my system. 
you know, that I might just gloss over and not see when it comes to stuff that's present within my system of belief. You know what I mean? So, wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 you know, I've read quite a bit and I'm shocked at how, how better some of these Eastern religions understand our Jesus better than we do. Uh, when it comes to someone like Gandhi or the Dalai Lama or Lao Tzu or Thich Nhat Hanh. I mean, all these people right. that I read, I'm just absolutely shocked at how, how well they understand Jesus. And in a lot of ways, better yeah. than the Western church. And, uh. Well, yeah. But we've been getting Jesus wrong for a long time, man. Don't, don't, don't shortchange <laughs> us on that. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've worked long they, and hard for that, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. They, they may have some good stuff, but they don't have Rambo Jesus. And so, you know, they're, they're forever going to be yeah. playing catch up, but it's true. It's true. Yeah. So yeah. that, that, um, that historical moment that you guys sort of, sort of mentioned a little bit ago, it, it always sort of strikes me. I, I, I would need data to back this up, but, um, if I had to take a stab at it, I would say the East-West divide is that beginning place where we start to see things, you know, uh, from a very Roman imperial mindset versus sure. a more Eastern. Uh, we were talking to uh, Baxter Kruger and we'll have him, actually, we're going to have him back on. He just agreed to come back on and because he teases stuff, that, that guy's crazy. But he, so we started giving, mm-hmm. we started getting into Celtic Christianity a tiny little bit. And I'm like, I can tell you have a lot to say about this, actually. We need to have you back on just to talk about that. But it strikes me as interesting that as, as the, as the gospel makes its, you know, makes its transit around, you know, that part of Europe and comes around what, what was Gaul and, you know, through the Celtic pagan areas, they run into things, mm-hmm. um, I, that are so similar that the Celts actually, in a lot of ways, they, they glummed onto Christianity pretty quickly. Because they saw within that Trinitarian structure, they're like, oh, no, we see this. Look at this symbol. We already have. So that sort of Celtic Trinity knot is, you know, predates Christ. And and then at some point, Baxter says, you know, there was a decision made. You know, are we going east? Are we going west? Are we going Rome? Are we going, you know, Jerusalem? And and we went Rome. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't I don't know that there was some like meeting called, you know, but like, but there's this definite <laughs> yeah. divide where we go, we go one way, they go the other. And next thing you know, we're out, you know, putting crosses on shields and slaughtering in Jesus name, because damn it, we got to go kill yeah. the infidel. And it, it just begs the question, how, how, how might Christianity have looked had we gone the other direction more fully, you know, but right. I, I love it, man. I, we, we haven't even touched on um, atheistic theist yet. And I think that deserves a, uh, a mention or two because that's a sure, brilliant yeah, book. And a, yeah. so, cause in the context of, you know, all of us with our pagan Christmas trees and our, you know, our, <laughs> our, our Easter bunnies, by the way, which I don't do because I'm a good Christian. So no Christmas trees <laughs> in my house. Of course. Of we course, only eat yeah. freedom fries. And, uh, <laughs> but within that context, within that framework, atheism does pop up, does it not? I mean, yeah. as another discussion of, okay, yes. is that not an expression of faith, even though it sounds antithetical to that? But, um, of course. So yeah. talk about that. What was, what was the, what was the impetus for, for that book? Well, I was a pastor for 12 years. So, and I resigned from my role as pastor January 1 of 2015 was when I was officially uh, done. So 20, 2003 till 20, 2003 to 2014. Yeah, I don't know. I was a pastor for a while. Anyways, a decade plus. And um, I had a radical shift 
in my beliefs at some point. Like I said in the beginning, I came from, I don't know, I don't know what traditions you guys come from or what your background is. Um, but I come from an Assemblies of God background, um, Pentecostal, charismatic, grew up in the midst of the revival and renewal movements of the nineties. Okay. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Toronto, Brownsville, Pensacola, all that kind of stuff. My wife and I, oh, yeah. we lived in Pensacola for two years. We were a part of the Brownsville revival, made many pilgrimages down there to get coughed on in order that we might catch the revival <laughs> flu that was going around, came back, spread it all around like COVID oh, and, uh, you know, had, had ourselves a little <laughs> mini revival ourselves. And, uh, but I was all into that. That was my thing, man. And, um, was, uh, it was just desperate for a genuine, genuine experience and a genuine encounter of God within that framework and within that context. Had many that probably were, some of it may have just been wishful thinking and youthful desperation, but, um, that's where I came from. And I was all in. I was all in. If anybody was ever all in, I was all in. And I don't say that to brag because I'm not proud really of a lot of what I did, but I was, I was all for this. I mean, I fasted every other day of my life. I prayed eight to 12 hours a day when I was 16, 17 years old. I was after this like a madman. And well into my early 20s, that was how I operated and that was how I lived. And um, at some point, and I can pinpoint the moment. Um, I was up north in uh, northern Michigan. In Michigan, if we go anywhere north of where we are, we call it going up north. So we went up to a, a cabin in northern Michigan. And um, I just got so desperate one night for an experience of God. And I think I talk about this in Saints, the first book. Um, but I just went out and was walking these dark roads. And I was just like groaning and travailing, like silently in a whisper, but just intense as hell. And um, just screaming out to God, like, God, I, I've got to know you. I've got to know you. I've been doing this for years. I've been going after you for years, but I have not had the experience that everybody else seems to have had that I should have had by now. And I was in my early 20s here. I think I was 21 or 22. And I prayed, I think for the first time in my life, I prayed an honest prayer. And I just said, if I am wrong about everything I believe, if all my theology is screwed up and backwards, I lay it down, take it, destroy it, remake me from the inside out, all I just, I just want the real thing. And there was like a, like a divine exhale that happened that night where I, I let go of something that I never, I had never been willing to let go of before because I was pushed against a wall in desperation. And I just, it was honest. And I can, I can, if I was like doing this on a cork board, you know, and all the little red threads, it would all go back to that moment. Um, because from that moment on, things began to, the, the really, the rigid structure that was my Christian life just kind of started to, to dissolve. And to be honest with you, it didn't go from like that to atheism. It went from that to a more gracious and loving understanding of God. That's where it started. And then on the eve of my 26th birthday, I was up at the same cabin and I had this sense that at 11 o'clock, let's go lock yourself in your bedroom and I'm going to change your life forever. That was the sense I had from God. And so I did it. And I had a, I had a mystical experience, which I'll leave in my brain because my language is not everyone else's language and it might not be fully understood the way I, the way it happened to me. But, um, something radically shifted in me that night. And from then on, things really picked up and my understanding of God changed drastically. And, um, theologically, I just started to, unravel. I started to understand grace and, and those principles more and more and more. And um, what happened, long story short, 
I had never, I, I had very few honest moments in my Christianity because I always was like following a script I felt I had to follow, following the ingredients, you know, exactly in order to get this little charismatic cake at the end of it all. And, uh, you know, so I went off script a couple times. One time I went off script was when I prayed that honest prayer. The other time I went off script was when I had this experience. And then I started to just go off script more and more. And um, I started to allow myself to ask questions because I felt the freedom to ask questions for the first time in my life. I started asking questions about hell, about original sin, about penal substitutionary atonement, about all these things that were just givens that I was obligated to believe just because of who I was and where I was. I started to poke holes in these things and started to realize they don't, they don't work. You know, the, the first time I held my newborn daughter, I realized a lot of my doctrines didn't work anymore. But it was a couple of years before I'd really allow myself the luxury of honesty when it came to those things. But it just all started to fall apart. And uh, like, again, at first it was more gracious. It was a more gracious view of God. But that more gracious view of God gave me permission to ask questions. And those questions then led to the complete... And, and I'm saying this like it all happened at once. It wasn't all at once. It was, a, it was a lengthy process. But those questions, grace gave way to questions. Questions caused God to give way. And my whole conception of God fell apart on me. And I was a pastor, full-time. This was my career. Um, this is what I did for a living. No side job. This is what I was planning on doing for the rest of my life. In fact, our hopes were even to stay at the church we were, eventually take over as the senior pastors, the lead pastors, and we could have resigned there. I mean, I had my whole life figured out at 21, you know? And uh, so to suddenly have this invasive, these invasive thoughts of, I mean, it was traumatic. It was hard. And, you know, there were weeks I had to get up and preach. And I'm like, I don't know if I believe this stuff. How do you do this? You know, I I just had to make it the most moral and loving principle I could make it into without saying things I didn't believe. You know, I was never dishonest. And I know people hear that. They say you were an atheist and a pastor at the same time. It sounds like I, I was never dishonest. I was never a liar. I always gave it my all. I always found a way to make it work. Even if looking back at it now, I'm like, you were, uh, you were certainly doing some uh, twisting of things there. But it, it was where I was. I didn't know what else to do. It's scary. And who do you tell about it? I, don't, I can't even right, tell my right, wife right. about this. You know, it's, it's certainly can't tell the board about it. Certainly can't tell the other pastors I'm on staff with <laughs> right. about it. You know, but I'd be in, I'd be in business meetings and, and church staff meetings, and I just break down crying because I'm just like, I, I can't, I can't do this. And I'm not that way, man. I'm, I'm tight with my emo- I'm emotional in front of people I know. You know, but otherwise, eh, I'm kind of a vault, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but it was so, it was just a rough season, man. And uh, so it started falling apart on me. And I, for all sorts and purposes, became an atheist for a season while pastoring at the same time. And looking back on it, looking back on it, even my atheism was a very deep spiritual experience because it was the thing that finally it finally purged me of, eh, sorry. Um, it was the thing that finally purged me of that image of God, you know, um, that I'd always had uh, in me. It, it, it had to totally dissolve on me. I couldn't just switch teams from team holiness to team grace. That God, right. that whole structure had to die. And it had right. to it had to die, it had to crumble. And so it, yeah. it took the literal dissolution of that God concept. And, you know, so I started reading, um, you know, more atheist philosophers and things like that. And, 
Um, I stumble on, on the work of Slavoj Žižek at some point, and um, he quotes Chesterton, oddly enough, as an as a Marxist atheistic philosopher, he quotes G.K. Chesterton, right. famous Catholic <laughs> writer. But Classic. He, yeah. But he uses Chesterton's, uh, a quote, or a, a, a chunk of Chesterton's work from Orthodoxy, his book, where Chesterton says, let the atheist himself choose his God, because it's only in Christianity where God himself momentarily becomes an atheist. And he's referring to Christ and the cross. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I, I don't believe Christ was ever forsaken of the Father, but still, Chesterton is making the point that even, even God incarnate, when experiencing life the way that you and I experience life, for a moment lost all belief, you know? Wow. Um, meaning, you know, teasing it out a little bit more, that even the experience of atheism has been swallowed up now into the life of God, or it's now revealed to us that it's always been a part of the life of God because of this playing out of this experience in time. And so now even an experience like that can be seen as a sacred one. You know, that loss of God is a sacred experience. And um, so, and, and, and Zizek, you know, he says that, here's the deal, these God concepts and structures, they live in your head. You know, he's coming at this from a completely atheistic, atheistic perspective. But he's like, they're not real to begin with. They live inside of you. So the true formula for atheism isn't that you stop believing in God. The true formula of atheism is that God has to stop believing in God. And so he wow. uses that moment on the cross as a symbolic moment. He is purely symbolic where God, a God concept stops believing in itself. And when a God concept stops believing in itself, you know, it's nothing, it's gone. And so in my head, that's what my atheism and my fundamentalism did to each other. Yeah. To yeah. where it, it, it disappeared and it was gone, you know, and uh, the whole system went away. And, and then reading further on to Christ and the cross, what happens is, He's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then if you put the gospel narratives together, and I know you're not supposed to do that, but I'll do it for the sake of making my point. Um, <laughs> he then cries out and the temple veil is torn from top to bottom, not necessarily to let God out of his cage, but to show us that there's never been any glory behind that veil because the ark had not been there for years. And right. so the place where it was assumed God was, which is detached from the suffering of the cross because anyone nailed to a tree is forsaken of God, right? So he's certainly not there. He's here, walled up behind this thickly woven veil. But when Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The veil, the veil is torn, revealing that there is no such God to forsake you. That God that we think forsakes us in those moments isn't even there to forsake us. And then Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's this, there's this exiting of one system symbolically and this entry into another system of where God was once out there and detached in some way, this moment of suffering exposes that God is non-existent, that that system simply does not work. And it's at that point that you discover, oh, you're here, you're in me, I'm in you. Oh, that's where that happens. And, and that's what happened with me through this experience of atheism. It's my, my internal, like my God stopped believing in itself. It dissolved, it collapsed in on itself. and then. I experienced what I can only call resurrection, you know? And I really think that life, from God's perspective, what it is to be alive, because the work of Christ is eternal. It didn't happen to God. It's always been a part of who God is. We just watched it play out in linear time because God created the device of time so we could watch his being play out before us. But death and resurrection has always informed who God is eternally. 
So from God's perspective, to be alive has never just been to be alive because you're born. To be alive has always been to be alive from the dead. You know, that's what life is. It's to have died and to now be alive. And I experienced that to some extent when my faith died, my whole way of doing things and living and being died. I mean, it's it's not just the loss of a belief system. It's the loss right. of everything. The very yeah. ground of your being is is ripped out. It's not just having the rug pulled out from underneath you or the foundation of your house or even a big hole dug out from underneath you. It's having your universe disappear all around you. Yeah. And you're just floating in black, empty space, you know? Right. And, and for a season, that's where I felt myself. I'm just, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, but it all vanished on me. So that, that, that journey from the tearing of the veil to father into your hands, I commit my spirit. It's not as fast as all that. It takes some time. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it took sitting in that black void of nothingness, not knowing who I was or where I was. Ah, it took being there for Christ in me to become a reality to me. Because God outside of me doesn't exist anymore. I can't work in that system. Yeah. It's gone. It'll never work again. Can't unsee what I've seen. Can't unexperience what I've experienced. No, for so sure. So sitting yeah. in that darkness, it was almost like, I always use the illustration of a haiku. A haiku is a poem, five, seven, five um, syllables um, in each line. And But more emotion can be conveyed through a haiku than some people can convey in an entire book. And yeah, it's because yeah. of how little text there is. And so like the blankness of the page puts a pressure on the richness of the words that causes their meaning to come forth. You know, whereas in other forms of literature, we flood the page with words and all meaning is lost because there's just so much. And so the stripping away of everything external um, left me on this blank page and the, the, the living epistle that I am, I suppose, in which Christ lives, had this pressure put on it to where Christ in me started to become a reality to me. And um, I really understood the principle of it's better for you that I go away or you'll never really come to know the comforter who's within. And um, so that, you know, that's kind of what happened with all of that. And um, I really came to have just a completely different perspective of who God is, how God works and operates. And it took atheism. It, it took that. And so now, even in light of what we were saying before, um, I can look back even on that experience of atheism and assimilate it into my spiritual life because even that experience has been included in who God is because Jesus himself was baptized into it. And um, so now even that's a part of the whole. But you're right, what you said at the beginning, I didn't want to leave unaddressed. You said that atheism and theism often are just opposite ends of the same pole. And you're 100% correct in that. They're the same they're really the same thing. Um, you pick up, you pick up one end, you pick up the other end. They exist. Yeah. One can't exist without the other, really. So, and yeah, um, for sure, some of yeah, and some of the atheists I really used to like and used to listen to, I can still appreciate who they are and what they do. But now, upon going back and re trying to re-listen and re-read re some of their books, it's it's almost like listening to uh, a John Piper or uh, a fundamentalist, uh, Paul Washer, or someone like that. Where at the time it was the most refreshing thing I'd ever heard because I never had a conversation partner, you know, to to engage with me on these subjects. But now looking back at it, I realize it was it was really the same thing. They exist within the same system, but you can't see that when you're in the system. And so, no, you know, you I have can't. compassion I mean, for yeah. people. You no, know, yeah. So, like again, the gospel is not the gospel is not a projection 
and this is to quote uh, John Caputo, the gospel is a projectile that smashes into our projections and, and, and establishes something completely new. So for me, the experience of atheism, um, I believe it was God stripping, you know, stripping all the text away from the story of my life and leaving me on that blank page so I could come to know not only who he was, but really who I am, you know? And, um, cause that was something I never knew. I, religion did not allow me to discover who I was. So my experience of that has been that religion has created and fashioned God into an idol because the second that we've objectified him and we've boxed him in and we've said, this is, this is who and what and where God is, we've, we've fashioned an idol out of, out of God. And so yeah. for a lot of people, that first honest step towards any kind of real faith is atheism because it has to, that right. God concept yeah. has yeah. to die. It absolutely has, and it has to yeah, die a pretty exactly. violent death, I think. It can't go whimpering off into that yep. good night. It needs to be eradicated, nope. excised, surgically removed. Um, and yeah. I think you need to spend some time in what may feel like the absence of God, but we all know looking back, it's right. not. But but in the, right. in the midst of it, it might feel like, like you know, you tore the curtain down and there was nobody there. <laughs> it's like, pay no Absolutely. attention to the man behind the curtains. Like, yeah. or, some, right, right. or there's some little dude playing an organ. Like, it's like, right. you know, <laughs> I'm like, holy crap, what have yeah. I been doing with my whole life? There's the, you know, the booming voice of yeah, God sure. that turns out to be nothing at all. Um, yeah. And then, so I, I think I've, I've had a very similar experience. And as you're talking, um, I'm just resonating with all this stuff because um, that that's where I've come to as well, is this idea that, um, is that God, uh, God cannot, God will not be contained. Mm-hmm. Um, religion has done its damnedest to contain and box in yep. and, you know, merchandise and sell um, yes. God. And it's all blasphemy. It's all heresy. It's all, you know, a mm-hmm. hundred times more blasphemous than anything I've ever said um, is this packaging of God and and this marketing that we've done. But but once you kind of grab a hold of what, what, y- what you're talking about, that God is in and through and for and the cause of and the sustaining of all things, you know, and it's all, you know, the psalmist goes back and says, if I make my bed and Sheol, you're there. And so, right. and yet we've still created places where we think God isn't, you know? Exactly. Um, yep. So yeah, that that's a beautiful yep. message. If you, um, man, if you haven't read the book, Atheistic Theist, um, um, again, I go back to what a cool title. Um, um, but it's more than just that. It's not just a catchy title. It's a, it's a journey that I think a lot of us can relate to, even if we haven't put words to it. You know what I mean? We might look, we might read your book and go, Oh, oh yeah, that was, that's what was happening. Okay. I did that. I just didn't know what to call it. Um, and so I think you'll find it a very healing and a very affirming, um, message that you're reading that book that, that, that will come alongside you on your journey and say, listen, what you, you know, what you've experienced is not, uh, wasted. It's all been wrapped up and enveloped into this whole thing that's your life. And uh, God has this this great habit of redeeming even those parts of our lives that we thought were were misspent or or wasted. So that's awesome. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. man, this has been amazing. Um, Jeff has three more books he's working on. Um, he's given you a little tease into one of them. And I know the others have sort of tentative titles, but man, you need to be look on the lookout for this guy. Are you still speaking? Are you still going out and doing your thing? I, um, as often as I can, but you know, due to COVID, a lot of places just yeah, aren't doing sure. anything. So, um, I've spoken at one semi-local church, maybe twice over the past year, but, um, really there's just not too much going on in the way of, uh, of speaking and, and things like that right now. So yeah. I've taken a break and to be honest with you, 
it's actually been pretty awesome. Not that I don't like going out <laughs> and speaking, but um, but being able to take a little bit of a break from that and spend some more time at home, it, it's been good and really helped me to you know refocus maybe a little bit more on writing and doing things like the podcast, which was just never a possibility. Um, before, oh, I don't want to say it wasn't a possibility, but I didn't make it a possibility because of my, sure, uh, sure. my schedule. So I've been able to do a lot more, spend a lot more time with my family. Uh, it, it, it's been great. But yes, you know, post COVID, I do plan on resuming that. Um, but yeah, it, it's just not been a thing that's been going on, but I'm not complaining. Well, yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. I don't know what my expectations were for this conversation. Um, but they've been way exceeded, man. It was, that was, that was really, really, really good. I'm happy um, to know it. Man. Yeah, I I appreciate your willingness to take the time. I know we I know we had to wrangle with schedules to get it worked out, but I'm really really glad that it did. Um, make sure and connect with. I tell you, if you're following anybody on Facebook still, Jeff's one of those guys, and like he's at the top of my queue. If he's posting something on Facebook, it's always good. Um, it's always thought provoking. It's always it's always creative and good. So follow him on Facebook. Check out his books. For goodness sake, let's keep him at that number one spot. Uh, for atheistic theists, uh, the more we can keep uh, some of those other folks, you know. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but but support these guys. But, yeah, not to be a, not to be a salesman, but uh, atheistic theist is presently for Kindle. It's only two ninety nine. And again, I'm not sure when this will air, but I plan on leaving it at two ninety nine for the foreseeable nice. future, just because I want to okay. make it as uh, readily available and accessible as possible. So it for will sure. be there. So I'm also this year. Yeah, I'm working on an audio version of it as well. So. Nice. Hopefully in the next few months that'll be done. So, oh, that would be great. Yeah, I know, I know a lot of our our listeners are consumers of of Audible, you know, audio books. So, um, so if you can, make, yeah, for sure. So check it out. Check out the, you know, be on the lookout for the new books. Check, uh, connect with with Jeff on on Facebook and you know Instagram and TikTok. No, nah, I'm just kidding. About TikTok, right? <laughs> uh, you know what? I got to admit, I am actually on TikTok now. I just started. are you really? <laughs> okay, now I'm now I'm I, checking. I it vowed out. I never would, but yeah, and then. <laughs> I want to see you on a skateboard drinking cranberry juice, sing along to you a Leopard okay. song. So let's just do you, something you, fun. So, yeah, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, man. We're going to go ahead and sign off. We appreciate right. you being here, man. It's been a whole, whole ton of fun. Thank you, guys. Love you, man. Thanks for all your work. We will uh, we'll talk to you very soon. All right. Peace out. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.